0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins
1: Good evening and welcome to Washington watch. I'm Joseph backholm. so glad that you are with us. You give us an hour and we give us a we give you a better understanding of the world you live in, that we live in from a biblical worldview. So glad you are with us. Quick reminder, last month, the House passed a bill to codify the redefinition of marriage into federal law. Senator Schumer has promised to do the same in the Senate when Congress gets back together in October. It is our hope that the Senate will not do that, but to do but in order to stop that from happening, you need to take action. We've made that very easy. Visit FRCAction.org slash marriage. You can see how your members of the House voted and also communicate with your US senator about this critical issue and urge them not to redefine marriage in federal law. Also remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch, as well as show resources that are referenced throughout the duration of the program. Interesting stories we're getting to today. A judge just ruled that New York City law requires a Jewish university to recognize an LGBT student group. What was his justification for that decision? And what will happen on appeal? We'll talk to the lawyer representing the school today in the program. Also, the National, the National Abortion Fund, excuse me, has started telling women who get chemical abortion drugs only to take the drugs in states where abortion is legal. What are they concerned about? We'll talk to a lawyer who's made it his job to sue the abortion industry and done so quite successfully. Also, we know the COVID pandemic has killed millions of people. But how many people were killed by the COVID lockdowns? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya will stop by for that conversation at the end as we continue uh, to be a bit reflective about our response to the COVID pandemic. But first, our headlines. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the final U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. President Biden spoke this afternoon in Pennsylvania, but ignored the anniversary in his speech, which primarily focused on policing and gun rights. The president also plans to deliver a primetime address on Thursday. Joining me now to discuss all of it and other news today is Congressman Warren Davidson. He is a U.S. Army veteran and a member of the Republican Study Committee and the House Freedom Caucus. He represents Ohio's 8th congressional district. Congressman Davidson, welcome to Washington Watch.
2: Always an honor. Uh, Thanks for having me on today.
1: We're glad to have you. Now, I know you are a veteran. It is a a somber uh, anniversary that we as a country are celebrating. Just what are your reflections as you think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan a year ago? We've had time to to think about how that went, what we've learned. What are your thoughts?
2: It's a tough anniversary. I remember this time last year just being exasperated as we were trying to help Americans who were being left behind by our own government. I mean, frankly, we had, uh, I I had about 40 U.S. citizen passports, images of their passports. They were on manifests. They were outside of Kabul in another part of the country. And our own State Department had blocked their departure and told them to work with the the Taliban. Uh, I, I just couldn't believe what was going on. And so when you mark the anniversary and you think where we were last year, um, Kevin McCarthy had brought uh, about 40 veterans from the Republican conference in to try to push the Biden administration over that weekend to um, make it an event-driven timeline instead of a, a, a date-driven timeline. So uh, the event should be you don't need to have worn the uniform served anywhere to know that the logic is first you pull the civilians out and then you pull the military out. And uh, unfortunately, the Biden administration did just the opposite. And, you know, frankly, we lost a lot of people that didn't need to be lost, um, including Afghans who risked their lives and the lives of their families to help us.
1: Congressman, when we think back to the Vietnam era and the Vietnam War, that had a strong psychological impact on the country that has taken a long time to recover from and and probably not fully recovered from, certainly for individuals who were involved. Are there parallels to draw from this with this situation?
2: Yeah, I think, look, uh, both long wars, in Afghanistan, you know, we were there. People people were deploying to Afghanistan who weren't even alive on 9-11 on the same authorization. So I hope we learn from that. Don't repeat the same mistake. Uh, we should go with a clear mission in mind. Uh, and, you know, great nations don't fight endless wars. That doesn't mean we don't fight wars. It was an incredibly just war. Uh, but we should have won a decisive victory swiftly and then moved on. That doesn't mean we need to leave the country. Uh, but we need to create some sort of stability there. And uh, I, I hope that we fight our future wars more intelligently. And you look in the war on terror, the way we confronted ISIS has been much smarter than the way we fought in Afghanistan or Iraq.
1: Congressman David, I want to get to some of the political wars that are being fought here in the country. And, of course, we are heading into these midterms. President Biden was in Pennsylvania today um, trying to rally the troops, it seemed, on some core issues of his. Um, I want to compare and contrast some things that he's been saying lately and, and get your response to this. Here's how he ended today's speech. Let's go ahead and play clip eight.
3: There's a lot of Republicans I've worked with for all the years in the Senate. I got a lot done. We respected each other. When we disagreed, we disagreed on principle. We never went and had lunch together. Not a joke. What in God's name has happened to that in the United States of America?
1: Congressman Davidson, I think most people look, look at that and say, that's right. We wish that people could get along despite their political differences. But now, in contrast to those statements from President Biden, uh, here's a, a montage we put together from last Thursday. This is all the same speech uh, in Maryland. Let's play clip one.
3: Trump and the extreme MAGA Republicans have made their choice to go backwards, full of anger, violence, hate and division. And the whole notion of the burn-it-all-down politics of MAGA Republicans continues to be a drumbeat. Well, the alternative to the Democrats are the MAGA Republicans. If the MAGA Republicans win control of the Congress, it won't matter where you live. Women won't have the right to choose anywhere, anywhere. We must be stronger, more determined, and more committed to saving America than the MAGA Republicans are destroying America.
1: So, Congressman Davidson, help us out with this. Does he want to have lunch with Republicans or does he want or does he believe that they're trying to destroy America?
2: Yeah, you know, the way he campaigned uh, in his limited appearances from his basement, uh, you know, he sounded like he was going to be trying to heal the divisions in the country and unite. Uh, I was there when he was inaugurated and his inaugural address was all about that and finding ways to work together. But if you look at what he's done, He's been one of the most divisive people to hold office. And when you look at, um, you know, what is his definition of a MAGA Republican? I think it's a Republican. Uh, You know, don't forget how he treated Mitt Romney. You know, when Mitt Romney was running against uh, him and Barack Obama in 2012, he was the, you know, unacceptable, extreme right, radical Republican. Mitt Romney is one of the most moderate Republicans to hold elected office anywhere Uh, And they define Mitt Romney the same way. So I think MAGA Republicans just Republican to Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, that seems to be the case. I think it's clear that they've focused, grouped that phrase and determined that that is helpful to them. And so they want to make everyone they disagree with look like a MAGA Republican. The Congressman, how do you think we get to a place where it's not as divisive? Is that even possible anymore?
2: Look, I think the the good news is, you know, not all Democrats, not even all the Democrats in Congress— Uh, believe some of these radical things, but the people that are leading the party, Joe Biden, Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett, Barack Obama, this cast of characters from the previous Obama administration, um, they're steering the party in a far left uh, direction, the direction that AOC and her self-described democratic socialists have pushed them. Now, they're not going there as fast as, um, as the far left wants them to go, not as fast as Bernie wants them to go, They're going as fast as they can drag the Democratic Party way off of what people traditionally described as as Democrats. And you see that like this week, you know, if you look at, um, you know, Democratic candidates in states like Ohio, they don't want Joe Biden to come campaign for him. Ask Tim Ryan to do a, a joint appearance with Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. He'll vote with them, but he doesn't want to be seen with them now that he's a Senate candidate.
1: Well, it is. I know that there are different reactions. We also saw Charlie Chris down in Florida express his enthusiasm to have President Biden come down and campaign with him. Uh, and I wouldn't think he's playing that well in Florida. But we certainly are getting different reactions from the from the various Democratic candidates. Uh, switching gears to the border a bit, uh, yesterday White House Press Secretary uh, Karine Jean Pierre had this exchange with Peter Ducey from Fox News about the inconsistent ways the country is handling COVID within the border compared to the way they're handling COVID at the border. Let's play clip two.
4: Somebody unvaccinated comes over on a plane. You say that's not okay. Somebody walks into Texas or Arizona unvaccinated. They're allowed to stay.
0: But, Why? But that's not how it works. Yeah. Like, we actually, no.
4: Well, I know that that's not what you guys want to happen, but that is what what is happening.
0: But that's not, it's not like somebody walks over, and <laughs> that's not, that's, that's not exactly how. That's
3: exactly
4: what's happening.
1: We, well,
4: Thousands of people are walking in a day, Some of them turn themselves over. Some of them are caught. Tens of thousands a week are not. That is what is happening.
1: Congressman Davidson, uh, is Peter Ducey correct there about what is happening?
2: He's factually accurate. I I wonder how she became press secretary if she doesn't realize that we actually have a land border with uh, Mexico. And people are, in fact, walking across the border uh, around four million since the Biden administration took office. So, you know, and and it is insane, you know, for an American citizen to come back into the country, they just now dropped the the vaccine test requirement, you know, the covid test requirement, and for a non-citizen to come in, can't even do it through the legal ports of entry, uh but they've never really seemed to care at all about uh the folks that they're bringing over, you know, literally by the busload, and then you see people like Eric Adams in New York City get upset when uh, you know, Greg Abbott delivers one busload of people, but Joe Biden's delivered thousands.
1: What's the justification, Congressman Davidson, uh, if you, if there is one, for not having any kind of vaccine requirement, even testing requirements at the border, yet the Pentagon continues to its efforts to move people out of the military uh, who have not been vaccinated?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that they view it as an ideological Rorschach test so that you know, uh, if you don't get a vaccine uh, and you work for the federal government, uh, you must be, you know, right leaning in your sympathies. And so this is a chance to purge the military, a chance to purge the federal workforce. Uh, and I, I really think that it's it's really that sinister in terms of how and why the Biden administration is doing that. We know it's not to keep people safe. I mean, these young, fit, healthy Coast Guard folks. Uh, they're not at risk by the virus. I mean, statistically, they have greater risk uh, from the vaccine. That's not true of every age group or every demographic, but certainly the young, fit, healthy people that are serving on active duty in our military, uh, that's, that's been the reality. We wish that wasn't the case with the vaccines. That's how they've turned out.
1: Congressman Davidson, in about 30 seconds, we saw some violence in Iraq break out last night. Are you uh, monitoring that situation?
2: Yeah, I haven't had a formal briefing on it, probably just seen public source information like everyone else. Uh, We certainly hope that there stays a a stable government uh, in in Iraq and we see a period of peace endure there. Uh, But we want to make sure ISIS doesn't exploit that and will remain vigilant.
1: Yeah, another part of the region. We talked there about Afghanistan and how much trouble is happening there. Um, But we see this bubbling up in Iraq as well. Congressman Warren Davidson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up next, does New York City law require a Jewish school to recognize an LGBT student group? We've seen a lot of great court decisions on behalf of religious freedom lately. For example, last week, uh, we saw the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals say doctors cannot be forced to perform transgender surgeries. But then this case shows up and says a university has to recognize a group. How do we reconcile all this? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us.
5: Learn more at FRC.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. The country's oldest Jewish university recently appealed to the Supreme Court to protect its First Amendment rights. The issue arose when a group of students at the New York City Yeshiva University attempted to launch an LGBTQ club known as the Pride Alliance Club on campus. But the school refused to recognize the club, stating that it was inconsistent with the university's Torah-based values trial court ruled the New York City law required yeshiva to recognize the club, spurring the university's appeal to the Supreme Court. Joining me now to discuss it all is Will Hahn, senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is representing the university in this case. Will, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Now, tell us, if you would, a bit more about this case and how this conflict came to be.
6: Sure. This is a case about who decides who can direct the religious mission at the nation's oldest and most renowned Jewish university. Yeshiva University, a school that literally means a school for the study of Talmud, or secular courts second-guessing religious decisions. This case came about because some small group of individuals thought that a judicial thumb should be put on the scale And then the civil government should be allowed to come in and tell yeshiva how to properly interpret the Torah and apply it on campus to its internal campus environment. And that when and the First Amendment is very clear and the Supreme Court has been repeatedly clear that that violates a healthy understanding of the separation of church and state that is at the core of the First Amendment's religion clauses.
1: And that does seem so intuitive that uh, fundamental to the idea of of, of the First Amendment is that states, the state cannot tell a religious institution uh, how to observe and practice its religion. But obviously, this trial court saw this differently. What was the court's reasoning for saying that the school must, by the law, uh, recognize this Pride Alliance Club?
6: The trial court said that yeshiva isn't religious enough, that despite its name, despite its over 130-year history of training the next generation of modern Orthodox Jews, that because it offered too many secular degrees alongside its world-renowned Torah values-based education and religious immersion, it simply could be treated like any other public accommodation and be forced to have a group that its senior rabbinical leadership determined Putting its seal of approval on that would violate their Torah values. And the plaintiffs who have sued Yeshiva, they know this. They've said publicly that this is about forcing a cultural change at Yeshiva because they don't agree with how Yeshiva interprets and applies the Torah. Who's right about that? Who's wrong about that? Whether everyone's somewhere in between? The bottom line is it's simply not for a civil, secular court to say. That's why we have the First Amendment. And that's why this case has gone up immediately to the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: Now. Would this court's uh, reasoning also require yeshiva to recognize, I don't know, Jews for Jesus or something like that? How how much liberty would they get, would the state get to uh, kind of micromanage yeshiva?
6: That's at the core of the dispute here, because yeshiva university, if it is not going to be considered religious, either for purposes of the First Amendment or New York law, than the fact that it has sex-segregated housing, the fact that its rabbinical seminary is integrated with with its men's campus, the fact that elevators get rewired on Shabbat to prevent electronic use, the fact that you have one of the only kosher Dunkin' Donuts in all of New York City, right on the Washington Heights campus, All of that is going to be subjected to judicial scrutiny. It's curriculum. It has different curriculum based upon um, male and female pursuant to the Torah. Uh, There's up to five hours of Torah study every single day on campus. All of these things could be subjected to crippling litigation, and not just for yeshiva, but any religious university that takes the position that its faith and its work are not broken apart, but an integrated whole, any religious university, any religious organization that has that view would be subjected to crippling lawsuits and could be chilled on exercising the very liberty that the First Amendment exists to protect. Now, Will,
1: We've seen some really good developments in First Amendment religious freedom law lately. We saw the Supreme Court in Carson v. Macon say you can't discriminate against religious organizations uh, in school choice programs. We just saw last weekend the Fifth Circuit sorry, last week, uh, say you can't force uh, religious uh, doctors to perform, for example, transgender surgeries in violation of their faith. We've seen a school in Florida recently win the right to continue to implement its school lunch program when the Biden administration had threatened to sh- shut that down. This feels like an outlier. Why is it that you'd see so many uh, favorable decisions defending uh, religious freedom, and then you get this kind of case that, that seems to be really inconsistent and seems to support the idea that the the government can lock down these religious organizations.
6: You're absolutely right that the Supreme Court has been crystal clear again and again that the free exercise of religion lies at the heart of a pluralistic society and wide majorities across the court, 9-0 decisions, 7-2 decisions, generating broad consensus. Many that my firm at the Beckett Fund have had the privilege of either bringing to the court or being a part of, and they have made these guarantees clear. And maybe this time it has to be written in crayon, but we're confident that it's going to be made clear again.
1: And to that point, then, uh, what do you expect to happen
6: I expect that the First Amendment that the American people count on to defend and support our traditions of accommodation and respect for pluralism will win the day yet again.
1: Now, this was a trial court decision in New York. You've appealed to the Supreme Court, or what's the process here? Where does the appeal go next?
6: Right. So right now, we have a two appeals going on. We've got an emergency petition that has been filed with the U.S. Supreme Court right now because the semester has started at Yeshiva University and Yeshiva University has got an order from the trial court telling it to immediately violate its Torah values. That can't be done. and, And so then that's one aspect of it. And then there's the underlying appeal of the overall decision, which is still making its way through the New York appellate courts and that will continue to proceed apace. Um, but right now, we're hoping and confident that the Supreme Court of the United States will do what it has consistently
1: done and stand up for religious liberty for all faiths. And, and we, we pray and hope, along with you, Wilhahn Beckett Fund, thanks so much for your defense of our religious freedom and for stopping by today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up. One of the country's largest abortion funding organizations may actually make it more difficult for mothers to take abortion pills. Why would that be? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay here.
5: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. My pleasure to be with you today. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. The National Abortion Fund, the multi-million dollar organization, largely backed by Warren Buffett, helps fund as many as 10% of all abortions in the United States. Beginning this week, the organization will require all mothers who receive chemical abortions paid for by the fund to ingest the abortion pills only in states where abortion is legal. A standard procedure until now has been for mothers who travel for chemical abortions to take one round of pills immediately and a second round after returning home. Why do they care about making sure chemical abortion drugs aren't being taken in places where abortion is illegal, could have something to do with lawsuits against the National Abortion Federation. Joining me now to discuss the new legal landscape is Mike Seibel, founder and lead attorney for Abortion on Trial, an advocacy group that specializes in getting convictions for abortion doctors. Mike, welcome to Washington Watch.
4: Thank you. A pleasure to be here today.
1: We're glad to have you. Please, if you would, illuminate us a bit on the work that you do.
4: So we at Abortion on Trial focus on helping women who are hurt by the abortion industry, Um, medical malpractice cases against the abortion industry, lawsuits against the pill manufacturers, lawsuits against uh, doctors who who um, prescribe the the pill in the wrong manner, as well as uh, any complications that happen from surgical abortions as well, uh, especially late-term abortions, which seem to be a problem here in New Mexico.
1: Now, in light of that and your experience with uh, malpractice claims, perhaps negligence claims, you see the transition that the abortion industry is making and the, the priority given to chemical abortions. What are your thoughts about what that means for women and for the abortion industry?
4: Well, for women in general, I think it's a very unsafe and uh, unregulated practice that's going on that's going to lead to a lot of both physical and emotional injury. What we're seeing is, um, you know, a lot of these women are going to the emergency room after the abortion uh, from a chemical abortion standpoint. Uh, We're seeing uh, atopic pregnancies that uh, are misdiagnosed and ruptured. We're seeing things such as sepsis or pulmonary embolism or uncontrolled bleeding, Eight uh, percent, according to APLOG, six uh, percent, according to the CDC, are ending up in the emergency room after they take these pills. So there's going to be a very large number of women injured as a result of the chemical abortion industry. Um, and it's going to subject both the abortion industry pill makers and the doctors to uh, numerous lawsuits for medical negligence, product liability, uh, medical malpractice so I, I think there 's some exposure there additionally uh, we 're seeing a different type of thing uh, happen on the emotional standpoint with women women are are taking this very hard when they take these pills. They are guilt-laden in this situation, um, and more so than they did with the surgical abortion. A lot of that is because they are the abortionists, their bathroom is the uh, abortion clinic, and their, uh, their toilet or their backyard is their cemetery, and they're, they're just taking this. So emotionally hard um, afterwards, and we're seeing a lot of emotional problems as a result of these chemical abortions, which is going to lead to a lot of lawsuits against the industry.
1: And the emotional harm that you described there is perhaps surprising because I think one of the uh, the perceived appeals of chemical abortions is that it's so early that it would be essentially victimous and benign. It would just be like taking an aspirin and then you're done with it. But as you described, that is not the experience that women are having. But at, at the top of the segment there, I I highlighted how the National Abortion Federation itself uh, seems to be very concerned about this issue. They're making women uh, commit to only taking these pills in places where these drugs are legal, why would that be?
4: so when you look at states like texas and we 've been working with um, the sanctuary cities for the on board mark lake dixon we 're making you know anybody who assists in the abortion um, illegal um, if it happens in the state like, like Texas where it 's banned, I think there's a prosecution risk that the the national abortion federation risks. In this situation, if they do it in that state, so if they keep the entire act out of the state, which is where it's illegal, then um, you know they're, they're protected a lot more uh, from a criminal standpoint, and even from a uh, medical malpractice standpoint than if they think it um, in say Texas uh, rather than in New Mexico. Uh, there, I, I don't think there's any jurisdictional, um, or at least there's a questionable jurisdictional. Um, uh, question um, if they take it out of state where in a state where it's legal.
1: Now, Mike Seibel, uh, slightly off script for you, but I have hypothesized that as the transgender movement uh, takes off, there's going to be a lot of lawyers getting rich off of the poor decisions being made by healthcare professionals in that space. Uh, it's not funny, but I think it is a way to like, I mean, the, the harm is very real, but you have experience in that space any chance you guys uh, branch out?
4: There's a chance that we branch out. I mean, you know, what, what, what we're going to face in the blue states is a, a deluge of injuries, uh, uh, health care crises, everything else in the abortion industry. Uh, I can see some liability on the transgender, um, uh, you know, the surgeries that they're doing. I, I think that there's going to be uh, a lot of questions a couple years down the line from some of these people. And I think they're going to eventually file suit.
1: Oh, I think they are going to as well. And uh, as a uh, kind of recovering former lawyer, it's the one issue that has perhaps prompted me to get back into the business, because there's a lot of work to be done there. But we thank you so much uh, for your work as well, defending the unborn and the victims of the abortion industry. And thanks for your time today, Mike.
4: Thank you. And you have a wonderful afternoon.
1: You do the same. Coming up, reflecting back on two and a half years of the COVID pandemic. Is it over? Have we arrived at a new normal? And have more people died from our response to COVID than were saved by our response to COVID? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, he returns to Washington Watch to have this conversation with us. Don't go anywhere.
7: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
5: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Quick reminder to make sure you join us. Put it on your calendar September 14th through the 16th in Atlanta, Georgia for our Pray Vote Stand Summit Many of the greatest thinkers and speakers in America on cultural issues will be there, Sam Brownback. Sam Brownback, excuse me, Dr. Ben Carson, Oz Guinness. Mike Huckabee, Dr. Albert Moeller, Ali Beth Stuckey, so many others will be there. Go to prayvotestand.org slash summit to sign up and register today. In addition, there will be a campaign training, a campaign school, also a worldview seminar for high school and college students as part of that great event. You can get more information and sign up for all of it at prayvotestand.org slash summit. I look forward to seeing many of you there. Now, it's been two and a half years since March 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic really took hold of the United States. With the CDC reset announcement last week, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci's upcoming retirement from the National Institute for Health, now is an appropriate time to reflect on the past 30 months in our nation's response to the pandemic. How much of what went wrong was simply reacting to the fog of war? What role did political calculations play? How can we do better next time? Joining me now to discuss this and all the latest COVID-19 news is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for an alternative approach to COVID-19 and was heavily criticized by Dr. Fauci himself. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Um, you kind of dropped the bomb last time at the end of our conversation and talking about how many other people had died from the lockdowns. And I want to get there in a moment. But before we do, I want to kind of lay some foundation uh, for where we stand right now with respect to COVID, uh, because Thankfully, mercifully, there are many fewer conversations. I think a lot of us have moved on with our lives. We're not thinking about this all the time. It's not top of mind, but it's still a thing. And Dr. Fauci, earlier today during an interview with Bloomberg's David Weston, had this to say about the current state of the COVID pandemic. Let's play clip four.
6: That I think we're really on the threshold of getting COVID to the point where it is at a level where it is low enough that we can actually not have it disrupt the social order. And we can, it's not going to disappear, David. It's not going to be eradicated and it's not going to be eliminated. But I believe we can get it to a low enough level if we do the right thing, if people get vaccinated who are not vaccinated and those who are not boosted get boosted. I think that time is coming. I hope we get to that within the next few months.
1: Dr. Bhattacharya, do you agree with that assessment?
8: Well I do think that covid is at a point where we do not need to have it front of front and center in our mind for most people uh but, and that, but it's not because uh people need, need to do the right thing for it to happen um case numbers will continue to be high uh, forever this we have no technology from stopping the spread of this this virus it's just in some sense like a cold where we don't have a vi- technology to stop it case numbers for colds are high it's the coronavirus it will spread around forever um, and so, looking at case numbers, I think if, if I understood that clip per- correctly, uh, which Tony Flash is saying, is is actually a misleading thing to be looking at. What we should be looking at is does the disease still produce high risk of severe disease and death for a certain segment of the population? And I think with the vaccines and with with the fact that such a large fraction of the population has already been. Uh, infected and recovered, and thus have very good protection against reinfection and against and against severe disease on reinfection. Uh, we don't need to reorganize societies around it. We should treat it just like we treat other uh, severe or, 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 or other other infectious diseases. Uh, it produces severe disease in some people. Uh, those people need protection. We should be developing better therapies for it. We should be developing better vaccines for it. We should not treat it as if it were a unique, generis kind of kind of virus that, uh, that, that deserves fundamentally transforming society to defeat.
1: A quick correction, I misspoke. That clip that I played was actually from last Thursday, not from earlier today. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, so in your estimation, is, the, is this situation with COVID ever going to be different than it is right now?
8: I mean, I think over time people will will be will uh, become infected and recover more uh, probably multiple times in your life. Uh, with each infection and recovery, you will probably have better protection uh, in terms of what would happen the subsequent time. It'll become uh, eventually for most people a mild disease. For older people, it will still remain a threat, just as other coronaviruses remain a threat uh, for people with uh, you know people with uh, severe chronic conditions. Um, it may may remain a threat, uh, for, especially for the older older population. Um, but it's the same it's the kind of threat that we cope with all the time, just because we're human, not something that's unique and and, and different. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that, that it does. It's I just want to be clear. I don't mean to say that we should never think about it again. I think uh, I very strongly support doing more research on on the top, on on COVID treatments, on um, on better vaccines, and so on. Um, But I do think that it should no longer ever again disrupt the lives of younger people, school children, and so on. Uh, That All of that did nothing really to protect them against the disease and disrupted their lives in ways that are really difficult to recover from.
1: Dr. Bhattacharya, what are your positions on the vaccines? Because they were emergency, rushed out. We had very little data on them. We've had some time to observe them now. Helpful? Helpful for some? Helpful for everybody? Not helpful?
8: I think for the 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 group that was the most helpful for were older people. Um, older people faced a high risk of death on COVID infection the first time they got COVID. Um, you know, something, if you're over the age of 80, it was something like 5% uh, infection fatality rate. If you had the vaccine on board, that divided that risk by 10. So it, it went from, you know, one in 20 to one in 200 or one in 400 risk of dying. I mean, it was definitely worthwhile and saved many lives, or older people, at the same time, for younger people, I don't think it, it's it's unclear whether it saved very many lives. The, the the COVID itself is a relatively small risk compared to other risks that young people face, um, and there were especially for young men with the mRNA vaccines a high risk of myocarditis, especially from Moderna and with the with the with the boosters. Um, and so it's unclear that it saved very many lives in for among young people uh the, the way this vaccine should have been rolled out is like how you roll out any medicine. you think about the benefits and the risks that are specific for each patient and then make recommendations on the basis of that. I think this vaccine is a was a godsend in many ways. It saved the lives of many older people from uh, from the first time they met covid uh, same time it's turned into this uh this cultural touch point which uh, with mandates, people losing their jobs, vaccine-based discrimination. Um, And I think that is all to be regretted. And and it's something that I think public health needs to apologize
1: for. Well, next topic within the topic, I want to get to this idea of the impact of the lockdowns. We know we kind of know, we know some things about the impact of the virus itself. Of course, we continue to learn that. But you very early on in the process through the Great Barrington Declaration, you tried to turn the public's attention and, and the authorities attention to the effect of the lockdowns. This isn't just about, are we going to save people from the virus? That there is a, there are real uh, consequences and real choices and trade offs from these lockdowns. Tell us more about that. What, in your estimation, uh, does the evidence show that the lockdowns did to the general public and to the globe?
8: I mean, I think uh, the lockdowns harmed nearly every single poor person on the face of the earth, uh, and it, it, it did it in, in a myriad of ways. And it's, it's because, uh, because they disrupted normal social functioning, uh, it's almost impossible to categorize or to, to, to list all of them. Uh, like the most direct effects in the very first days of the lockdown, like take, for instance, in India, uh, when they locked down, uh, almost a half billion migrant workers were forced to walk to their home villages from the big cities where they worked. Migrant workers that often had, that lived hand to mouth. So they would buy food for the day and, and goods for the day to sell. But from the goods they sold, they'd buy food for the next day. Uh, when they locked down, essentially their, their entire life savings disappeared at the stroke of a pen. A thousand died on transit, walking back, at the order of the government to lockdown. Uh, in uh, in uh, March of 2021, the UN estimated that that 230 thousand children had died from starvation in South Asia because of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown. Uh, the estimate is that 80 million people worldwide have suffered from hunger and starvation as a consequence of the economic dislocation. When uh, uh, when we have a globalized economy, you have an interconnected world, uh, you, you, d- d- poor countries reorganize their economies around that globalization event. And overnight, it was broken. And uh, what happened was, Men, millions of people lost their jobs, lost their ability to take, take care of their families, and many many people have died as a consequence and that 's in poor countries in rich countries, uh, people have faced lockdown harms in the in the form of delayed medical care. many women uh, are going to come in with late stage breast cancer that should have been picked up during two thousand and twenty uh, when we told people to stay home instead of getting standard. Medical care medical uh, you know uh, uh, screening uh, children who many in many places around the world, especially in uh, in in places like california um, who left essentially had a, a year and a half of disruptive schooling, well their entire lives will be disrupted by this it's very difficult to make up such a long period of time within childhood and good evidence from before the pandemic suggests that those kinds of disruptions play out in the lives of children with them becoming uh poorer as adults less healthy and le- and likely to live less long. Uh one estimate in the early, early in the pandemic suggested something on the order of five and a half million life years lost just from the spring lockdown in the United States alone. Uh, and and it's worse in other poor countries. In in uh, Uganda, for instance, I think uh four and a half million children that for after two years of missed school can't be found again. They're just not coming back to school. Yeah. Uh it's a it's a devastating Uh, toll these lockdowns have had and we're going to need to work to repair the damage to the best we can, but I do not know how it's possible to do to repair all of it.
1: You talk about the impact of education. I think we're still discovering, and uh, you mentioned there specifically in Uganda, but I think uh, that story remains to be told here in the United States because millions of children have left the public school system. Some have moved into other uh, situations, but not all of them. And I think there are some who still have not uh, are not accounted for in many ways. Now, you mentioned there the difference between developing nations and first world countries and how that, how, how that affected the population, the, these lockdowns. If we were to do it again, do you think that uh, countries should respond differently based on their economic situation and their ability to handle lockdowns? Uh,
8: absolutely. I think for the poor of the world and poor countries of the world, lockdown has been a devastating uh, mistake. It has destroyed the lives of uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of poor people. Uh, the livelihoods. Some, many, many who've died of, or har- starved as a consequence. Uh, the the idea that the World Health Organization recommended lockdown to the poor countries of the world still shocks me. Uh, and I think uh, an organization that d- does not understand the living circumstances of the vast majority of the world's poor, making recommendations that were guaranteed to harm them, when in fact COVID for the vast majority of them was a was 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 a very low on the list of threats they face. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the world needs to look at that very carefully and 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 put in place advising public health authorities that have a better understanding of the living circumstances of the poor around the world.
1: One of the other impacts of lockdowns you mentioned there was the effect of delayed healthcare. And we know that all the hospitals were essentially uh, told don't do anything other than COVID, which means people weren't visiting their doctors for uh, uh, what might seem like less serious treatments. As a result of that, uh, things were not being diagnosed earlier, and there was r- r- real concern that cancer diagnoses were not happening at a time when they could be treated. And now that we've had a couple years to track this, any sense of how significant that concern was?
8: I mean, that was a pretty important concern. I do think uh, there have been some good attempts to try to catch up, basically, to, in, at least in the United States, uh, to, to uh, sort of bring people back in for standard screening that didn't happen before uh, in the in other countries, it's less good. So, like in the UK, there's an enormous backlog of that kind of standard screening procedures. That's going to take its toll. Uh, it, a lot of places uh, you know, are are seeing overwhelmed hospital systems. New Zealand, Australia are seeing overwhelmed hospital systems as, as COVID arrives on their shores, and you have this like backup of cases from uh, from the lockdown. Uh, that, that, that happened in the, both, of those, both of those countries. Um, so I think uh, it, it varies from country to country. Uh, I think uh, for many of these things, we can do things to address uh, screening recommendations and to, to speed things like that up. The thing that I find uh, I think is going to be hardest to address in the United States is the psychological toll of lockdown. Um, in July of 2020, one in four young adults, and according to a CDC survey, reportedly considered, considered suicide the previous month. Yeah. One in four uh we 're seeing unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety, especially among young people uh, you know, I think it 's no no surprise that we 're seeing excess deaths from uh, from fentanyl overdoses and other drug overdoses um, we 're seeing a a, a huge toll paid, especially by young people, from the psychological harms of lockdown. And that, I think, will be much more difficult to make up. But I do think that that's the right thing, the question to ask, is how do we address these problems that are created by lockdown? We can we can uh, pull our hair outs over, and we should lament and, and uh, the, the, the fact that we did this and resolve never to do it again. But more constructively, how do we repair some of the damage? Not all of it can be repaired, but at least some of it can, and we should work to do so.
1: Yeah, I think you make a great point that... Uh... There is a benefit of hindsight, and we do have that now, but in some ways, it is what it is, and you make mistakes, and then you try to recover from those, and I think uh, we do need to learn and not repeat the mistakes of the past, but we also have to come together and try to repair uh, the damage, but Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, you are a voice of reason, and uh, and um, reason is probably the best word I'm looking for here, and in, in all of this chaos, we've really appreciated just the counterbalance, and, and the way you have done this has been a a service to the country and continues to serve us as well. So thanks for your time today and your courage in saying it. Appreciate it. And he is, uh, of course, a great example of of courage amidst tremendous pressure from essentially his entire profession and much of academia across the Western world, if not the globe. Um, But so much of what he said early on has been vindicated, and he continues to uh, to bring us that reason and we're grateful for it friends that is our program for today we're grateful for you as well because without you these conversations would not be nearly as interesting we look forward to seeing you tomorrow here on washington watch until then fear god but nothing else
0: washington watch with tony perkins is brought to you by family research council and is entirely listener supported